Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einsteiner Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteiner Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R yet again. It's a big day today because the uh, Reckling Community Cup is on. If you're so inclined to see some footy, um, anyway, all the details are on the site. We'll talk about them a bit later. In the studio with me is uh, Chris Capey. Good morning, sir. Good morning. Good to be here. Let me just say that uh, having got wet at the MCG last night, I am very much in the mood for the Reckling Cup. <laughs> Did it rain? Oh, yeah, very much so. I was just checking what I wasn't sure you meant. I'm still carrying some on me. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what that was? Uh, I wondered about that. Uh, Ah. Yes. Now, folks, it is a pretty big show today. Um, Not the part that Chris, KP, and I are doing. That's standard. (laughs) But we do have quite a number of PhD students on the line because you may have remembered a few weeks back we did our 20 PhDs in 20 minutes program. Now, unfortunately, or fortunately, there were over 80 applications. Wow. And I'm weak. I can't say no to too many people. So what I did was I broke the successful, the, the sort of high-ranking group into two groups, one the in-studio group and two the online group. Mm. And so today we have the online groups, not not the full 20. It's uh, We had about 35 in total that we chose. Um, and the second half of those we're going to do in just a moment. Splendid. Which is pretty cool. Mm. Uh, and I should say they're all over the place. Um, <laughs> do you know, I don't mean, I mean mental, please mentally, tell me more. I mean... Uh, <laughs> The, in terms of distance, the furthest wow. one away is in Paris. Wow. Which I commend, I commend her because it's like 2, you two realize, o'clock in the morning. Just for future reference, I'm happy to go to Paris and interview people for you if you'd like. <laughs> I, you know, the budget well, stretches that far. I will see. I'll, I'll check the triple R budget. Um, <laughs> are you happy to row? Uh, I'm happy to be rowed. Yeah, I was going to say. It could be a little bit of a challenge to get you there, but, you know, we'll do it. We'll do our best. All righty, Chris, I'm going to turn your microphone off for a second while I interview all of these these great PhD students. So let's get straight into it, folks. Uh, First up is Shreya McLeod from the University of Newcastle. Good morning, Shreya. How are you going? Good morning, Shane. Thanks for having me today. It is great to have you on the line. Now, you work in the area, you work in sport, essentially, and in particular, working on uh, concussion in rugby and female athletes. And that, I think, is, is something, just correct me if I'm wrong, but most of the interventions are done based on male data. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. Um, research in the female sporting space is very much in its infancy at the moment. And we're working very hard to increase that available data so we can make decisions based on female athletes versus male-derived data. Yeah. So how do you go about that? So I think one of the biggest things is we need to increase the injury surveillance data. So Mm. a lot of my PhD focuses on injury surveillance data in women's rugby league, and we are trying to then ascertain what the risk factors are in terms of um, sport-related concussion, essentially. And then we can make decisions based on policy as well as injury risk reduction once we have that surveillance data available yeah is it is it mainly short-term stuff or is this more a long-term long-term thing you have to be dealing with because the is it like a cumulative damage we're talking about or are you more the acute stuff 
At the moment, we can only really look retrospectively, but I think eventually we will start doing prospective studies. Mm -hmm. And certainly we are already starting to do some prospective studies looking at women as they start playing sport through childbirth, through pregnancy, childbirth, and as they get to becoming older adults as well. And that's really important because we can only make decisions based on prospective data in terms of long-term health. Yeah. Presumably this will change the way athletes are insured the whole lot yeah absolutely and i think that's one of the biggest things we want to make sure that we are ensuring that sports are safe and we know that sport is good for everyone we know that exercise is good for everyone we want to make sure that as much as possible we are making decisions as um, as much as possible to reduce the risk in terms of playing sport yeah look great stuff shreya thanks so much for chatting to us and starting off this round of the 2020 thanks shane appreciate it Next up is Hannah Brown from the Australian Institute for Microbiology and Infection at the University of Technology, Sydney. Morning, Hannah. Good morning. How are you going? Good. It's great to talk to you. Now, you're working on these things called archaea, these sort of ancient microbial thingies. Tell us a bit about those. Yeah, so in biology, we typically divide up the tree of life into three big groups. So the first is bacteria, which we're all familiar with. Eukaryotes, which is basically anything that's complex life, like plants, animals, anything like that. And then in the middle, there's archaea. And these were really only discovered around 50 years ago because they look exactly like bacteria. But if we look at their DNA, they're actually more closely related to humans. That's wild. Now, we, my understanding is we find these weird creatures around things like the geothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean. How is it that they can survive in those environments? Yeah, so they have to have a lot of different types of adaptations and not just hydrothermal vents, but Antarctica, salt lakes, all these kinds of extreme environments. So depending on where they are, they'll have different types of adaptations. Um, The archaea that I study is um, isolated from a salt lake, so it has to have important adaptations that let it survive around really high concentrations of salt. And one way that it does that is by shape-shifting into all these different types of shapes and sizes. So I'm studying a little bit of how they're able to do that. That's wild stuff. Have you sort of put your hand up with like NASA and said, you know, if if, if you're going to find stuff on like moons like Enceladus around Saturn or old stuff at Mars, I'm your person, give me a call? I wish. That would be absolutely amazing. NASA, if you're listening, (laughs) hit me up. But um. Yeah, there's a bit of research about how Archaea can maybe live on the moon, on Mars, um, and that stuff's really cool as well. Yeah, that we – look, NASA – most of NASA listen, just putting it out there. Like not all, <laughs> but so. the majority – the leadership, you know, so you're going to get a gig from this for sure. Hannah, thanks so Great. much for chatting to us today. It's a fascinating topic. I love these extreme environment creatures. They're wild stuff. Thanks so much. Thank you. Folks, next up is Lily Kensington-Evans from the Institute of Molecular Bioscience at the University of Queensland. Good morning, Lily. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It is great to have you on from the University of Queensland. Now, uh, antibiotics, this is such a troubling issue at the moment. So we're in in pretty dire trouble with regards to resistance, aren't we, at the moment? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It's really um, reaching a critical level and it's predicted by 2050 that we'll have over 10 million deaths a year annually. Wow. Um, Yeah. Now, your, your area of expertise is, is chemistry, so you're looking at the possibility of combining them. This, and by that, I assume you don't mean me just taking two different ones at the same time. No, correct. So we currently have combination therapy where you take two antibiotics at once, but this has some implications as you rely on the two antibiotics reaching the same target at the same time. 
So what I'm trying to do is take those two antibiotics, modify them slightly, and join them together. This is called the hybrid approach, and I'm not the first person to try and do this, but I'm trying to modify new antibiotics, and I'm trying to also take something called an anti-biofilm agent and attach that to an antibiotic. And is this approach just for like humans, like for us, or is this the sort of thing we'd see in agriculture and, and so forth as well, where we know a lot of the antibiotic-resistant problems are, are coming from? That's a really good question. So currently it's for therapeutics. Um, that could be taken to animals and sort of husbandry, I guess. But in the agricultural sphere, I haven't seen the hybrid approach being um, sort of researched or studied. Mm. Got to get onto that, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> Those naughty agricultural people. Oh, no, nah, they're good, but they're, uh, I think that's, is, that is where a lot of these problems stem from, right? That is a lot of uh, where this problem stems from. So it's anthropogenic use and misuse. It's our own misunderstanding of these antibiotics. It's also overuse in agriculture, in veterinary, mm. as well as just intrinsic bacterial resistance factors. So bacteria recognize these antibiotics full stop. So we're never going to be able to beat evolution. We just want to be able to restock that antibiotic pipeline so we have enough drugs um, to be giving out. Yeah, yeah. Sounds good, Lily. Uh, thanks so much for doing that. I'm sure if you, you get it all going, we will be very thankful one day when we're desperate for it. Thanks so much. Yeah. Folks, next up is Claire Richards from the University of Technology, Sydney. Good morning, Claire. Morning. Thanks for having me, Shane. It's great to have you on the line. Now, you're doing something wild. I mean, you work on placentas, but Correct me if I'm wrong here, but you're printing these things. That's exactly right. Wow. So how do you we, print them? How do I print them? Yes, yeah, so I use a bioprinter. So this device actually mixes the cells from the placenta that we grow. They're called trophoblasts, and it mixes them in this lovely squishy jelly-like substance, and it actually prints these into our culture wells in our plate. And as the cells get really comfy, they're really happy in that environment because it feels like being in a placenta or in a tissue, they start to make these um, these organoid structures, we call them, these like balls of cells, and um, they actually mimic a placenta, so we call them a mini placenta. Hmm. And so presumably that means you can test drugs and test various other things on them and they would react as though they were a real placenta in someone's body. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, the model's quite basic. We've only got one cell type. But mm. the more complex we can make this model, the more accurately it will reflect the placenta. And we can study the placenta outside of the body. Yeah. To, to, are you able to mimic that for a certain individual? So, for example, if you had one person that had a particular problem and you wanted to match their genome and so forth, you could print their placenta cells effectively. Not So not a generic version, but some, one that's specific to one individual. I mean, potentially, we would be quite restricted because we don't want to go taking samples from a pregnant mm. woman. You could potentially grow her placenta after she's delivered it and given birth and then see maybe for subsequent pregnancies what she might be at risk of. But each pregnancy is different. Each baby is different. So I don't know if we test it um, at a personalized medicine sort of approach, mm. but more so understanding the basics of pregnancy and then complications like preeclampsia that we're interested in. Yeah, that's absolutely wild stuff, Claire. I, I just imagine you in a pub, someone, you know, what do you do, Claire? I print placentas. What do you do? 
exactly. It's a golden statement. It's it's super interesting. Um, thanks so much for being on Einstein and Go Go today. Thanks, Shane. Next up is Ariana Costas from the Australian Institute for Microbiology and Infection in the University of Sydney. Uh, Ariana, good morning. Good morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. What time is it there in Paris, Ariana? It is 12 past three at 12. the moment. <laughs> Not p.m. <laughs> AM. No, a.m. <laughs> Huge effort for coming online. Thank you so much. And I mean, look, you, you're normally in Sydney, so I don't feel that bad. You're on, you know, yeah. you're over there. Holiday or work? Work. Work. So I'm here for my PhD. Very, very good. Now, you're working on urinary tract infections. Give us a, a bit on specifically what you're going after there. Yeah, so my project is looking at the antibiotic response of E. coli in urinary tract infections. So everyone knows about antibiotic resistance. It's when a bacteria has specific genes that allow it to grow in the presence of antibiotics or a specific antibiotic. But um, we've seen that bacteria are able to evade antibiotics or not um, be treated by them by means of tolerance and persistence. So when we look at tolerance, it's when bacteria are able to grow in the presence of an antibiotic, but they don't have any resistance genes. So there's no clear reason why they're growing. Um, They tend to grow very slowly and reduce their rate of replication during this period of antibiotic treatment. Yeah, interesting. And then we have persistence, which is looking at um, a subpopulation of a bacteria that are able to grow in antibiotic um, or that are able to survive antibiotic treatment while the rest of the population die. These guys kind of like are hidden from the antibiotics. They don't grow and remain dormant and then reactivate at some point. So we think this particular mechanism of persistence could be um, influencing recurrent UTIs if they're creating these kind of reservoirs of bacteria. Mm. Yeah. Um, could be pause. That's uh, it's disturbing to hear this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> these reservoirs they just hang around. And I suppose when you run down or you're a little bit uh, knocked around, then they decide they'll just come back and give you a bit of grief. Is that that's probably the norm? Yeah. Yeah. So recurrent UTIs are quite common amongst females. Um, UTIs clearly have a sex um, bias, but so we tend to see more recurrent UTIs in females. However, males. UTIs are always chronic. Mm. So, um, yeah, we're seeing these differences. And maybe in my research, I'll be seeing differences in bacterial behavior between males and females. And that could also be contributing to this um, antibiotic non response. Yeah. Um, and you're seeing different characteristics. Well, all I can say on behalf of anyone listening who's feeling a bit uncomfortable, uh, hur- hurry up, please, Ariana. <laughs> Finish this work off. Thanks so much for coming to us all the way from Paris. I, I you know, release you to your slumber now if you uh, – well, it's probably <laughs> uh, it's 3 o'clock. You might as well get up. Stay up. It's all good. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Ariana. Thanks so much. Okay, next up is Nathan Harrison from the Flinders Health and Medical Research Institute at Flinders University. Good morning, Nathan. Good morning, Shane. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Great to have you on. Now, you're working in a particular really interesting area for me, which is around smoking cessation support and how we support patients. And my understanding is, in particular, you're looking at those in the sort of high-risk lung cancer group. Tell us about that work. 
Yeah, that's right. My work focuses on how we can best offer smoking cessation support to people who smoke in the context of the proposed National Lung Cancer Screening Program. So that's a targeted lung cancer screening program uh, with recent announcements. We'll commence uh, operation by mid-2025 and for which eligibility is really based on age and smoking history. Mm -hmm. Many people that will be eligible for that program will continue to be smoking and it really offers, offers a really unique opportunity to offer that smoking cessation support. Yeah, it's interesting. Lung cancer is one of those very stigmatized illnesses, though, isn't it, where, you know, everyone just assumes it's because you've been a long-term smoker if you end up with that. I mean, how does, how does that play into this work? Yeah, that's right, which, um, of course, we know is not true. Anyone with lungs can get lung cancer, uh, but these existing biases and the like can really stop people getting involved with sort of preventive health opportunities that they may benefit from. So making sure that these sorts of cessation supports on offer and the way in which conversations are had in this context are non-stigmatising is really important. My work focuses on working with uh, you know data obtained from health professionals and consumers and the like to make sure that these opportunities uh, help to minimise stigma as much as possible yeah well i think that that would be great if we can do that and certainly making sure that people take up the screening program options uh, that is such an important aspect of it otherwise they just people just don't sign up for that do they if they're they're feeling stigmatized in any way that's right and there's really unique opportunities at this point of time um, in advance of the commencement of a, of a program to make sure that these uh, opportunities to get involved and to be offered smoking cessation support um, are as effective and as acceptable to potential consumers as possible. Yeah, good stuff. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks so much for being on the program today. Thank you, Shane. Next up is Darren Lee chong Young from University of Tasmania. Good morning, Darren. Morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. Now, you work in a very, very disturbing area at the moment, which is looking at some of the you know, various heat waves and so forth, uh, in, in particular in the marine environment that we're seeing with, with the changing climate. Uh, give us an idea of what you're, what you're looking into there. Oh, yes, Shane. Um, so first, to be able to understand my research, uh, you first have to understand how climate extremes are defined. And Whenever you talk about extreme events, normally you, you compare it to a reference period in the past. So, Shane, it's the same as if I'm telling you, um, oh, this guy over there, he's very tall, right? Mm. But if, for example, if everyone in the world is as tall as him, then he won't be as tall, right? Yeah. And it's a bit similar for marine heat waves because... Um, to, to be able to detect them, we have to compare a reference period in the past to know how extreme it is. Yeah. So are you are you set trying to work out what that baseline is or how often we move that baseline? What, where do we set it at the moment? Uh, yeah, that's correct. Um, so the reason is because you've got global warming happening and so the temperature is slowly rising. And uh, in the past, We've used a specific baseline from uh, most of the time it's 1982 to 2012. Um, but because you've got global warming happening, um, the temperature is slowly rising. And if you think about it, if you keep a baseline fixed, um, eventually the whole world will be in a permanent state of marine heat waves. Mm. And so that's why this issue is so important. Yeah. Look, it's fascinating stuff. And I think, uh, you know, there's so much misinterpret 
exploitation and misuse of the data, and we have to make sure as a scientific community we, we can utilize it as effectively as possible to make sure that the right changes are being made to prevent you know further catastrophic damage to our climate. Darren, thanks so much for chatting to us today. Good luck with this ongoing work. It's very important. Thanks so much, Jim. Folks, uh, next up, just before we take a break, actually, we have Ebony Westbury from the Australian National University. Uh, and Ebony also does regular exchanges with the, um, with the university in Barcelona. Um, welcome, Ebony. Shane, thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. You work on Neanderthals. I love that. And um, their butchery practices. Tell us what's going on there. That sounds like a, a wild ride. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, Neanderthals have this misconception that they were this brutish, lesser than able species. So what I do is I'm a zoo archaeologist. I specialize in the bones. My research site is a 60 to 70,000 year old rock shelter in Spain. And what we're finding is that these Neanderthals are targeting juvenile individuals, juvenile herbivores when they're hunting. Um, and they're also hunting a lot of small prey like turtles and rabbits which usually is thought to be unique to anatomically modern humans. Um, and so what we're finding is that Neanderthals had uh, complex hunting abilities. Um, and on top of that, the site that I'm looking at is this transitional period between a warm climate and a cold climate. So what it demonstrates is this resilience and adaptability to changing environments and a really uh, detailed understanding of their landscape. Yeah, that's wild stuff. I hope one day you could sort of come back and say, you know, this is what they ate in the summer periods. This is what they ate in the winter periods, and they and they actually did well, different things. Is that are we anywhere near that? That's exactly what I'm finding. So this targeting of juvenile, particularly juvenile um, deer and horse, means that they were only occupying this site seasonally during the mm. breeding seasons, and they would have moved around the landscape depending on food resources. Yeah, it sounds like they were smarter than we gave them credit for for a very long time. Absolutely. And I mean, genetic evidence has also proved this with the interbreeding and the, um, us having DNA Neanderthal in us. So clearly they were able to communicate. Um, they have evidence of art. They were a lot smarter than we give them credit for. Yeah, I've never had a genetic test, but the only thing I'm really interested in is just how much of them is in me, especially with my red hair color. I don't know. Is that? <laughs> yeah. So uh, basically every human on earth, if they're not pure African haplotype, has up to 4% Neanderthal DNA in them. Awesome. I want to be able to say I got 20 just as a point of, uh, you know, just as a point of credibility with uh, my, you know, academic colleagues. Yeah. <laughs> Ebony, thanks so much for chatting to us. It's such an interesting uh, topic. I love how much we can get out of this, you know, one site and how much you can get learning out of just one site in Spain. That's wild. So thanks so much for being yes. on Einstein and Gogo today. Thank you very much. Folks, uh, we are going to take a break for some, uh, some music. And when we come back, we're going to have a few more of our uh, – 20 PhDs in 20 minutes. Uh, you're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. Triple R. And welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. We are partway through a group of PhD students as part of our ongoing 20 PhDs in 20 minutes program. We don't quite have 20 today. It's the follow-on part two from the first group. So a total of 35 we've done this year, which is pretty wild. But next up, we have Grace Lawrence from the Institute of Molecular Bioscience. Good morning, Grace. Morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the line. Now, you work in the area of immune system dysregulation. Do we, I mean, the immune system is such a hot topic, whether we're dealing with cancer or, you know, treatments or anything at the moment. But specifically, what are you looking into in terms of the immune system and the diseases that it sort of lends itself to causing? 
Yeah, so um, I work on immune cells in particular. So chronic inflammation is super interesting because we know that it drives such a diverse range of diseases from neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's to arthritis. Um, but we don't know enough about the fundamental biology to be able to properly treat these things. Mm. So my project, um, if you cast your mind back to high school biology and the, the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, um, what we've found is that um, mitochondria morphology, so they're specific shakes, shapes, they're a bit like shapeshifters, um, we can change the shape of the mitochondria and actually um, regulate the inflammatory profile of immune cells. So my project is looking at First of all, how can the shape of mitochondria actually affect immune cell activity at all? But also, can we harness this therapeutically? That's very cool. And, and what sort of range of shapes? You know, when, I, when you say shapes, I hear triangles, rectangles, octagons, <laughs> dodecahedrons. Like, what are we talking about with the mitochondria? What sort of shape changes? Yeah, so the mitochondria, it's really cool because it's quite a dynamic organelle. So usually it's in these big, long tubular networks. They're quite interconnected. Um, under stress, they can go undergo quite different morphologies. So the morphology that I'm particularly looking at is called mitochondrial fission. So they can undergo um, scission at specific sites and um, have this sort of punctate um, circular phenotype. So we're kind of trying to study and track those sorts of shapes and what's the consequence of the um, immune cell activity it has. That's wild. It's a wild ride. I think um, when you said, uh, if you remember back to your high school biology, that's just a traumatic experience for me. <laughs> I left biology in year 11. Does everyone listening know that? That the host of this show stopped doing biology in year 11? That's, yeah, that's probably disturbing. Uh, thank you for a very clear explanation, Grace. For me, that is very helpful because my biology is a bit, <laughs> bit on the weak side. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Okay. Next up is Sarah Ratcliffe from the University of Sydney. Good morning, Sarah. Morning, Shane. It's great to have you on the line. Uh, now, you are working on sort of this whole big game of, you know, reproductive choice and how people are dealing with it. And I was reading the information you sent, and it, I was very happy to hear that over 80% of our population supports reproductive choice. But on the counter side to that, there is still substantial problems. Tell us about that. Absolutely. So we know not only in Australia, the majority of people support abortion and choice, but around the world as well. And that's just increasing. Mm. However, when abortion is stigmatized and anyone related to abortion is stigmatized, we have reduced quality of care. We have impacted safety. Uh, people have less autonomy um, and individuals, communities and societies are all impacted negatively in multiple different ways, including our economics. So it's really important that we eliminate um, this stigmatization of abortion. Yeah. Do we know where, you know, I've got a couple of guesses I'd chuck at you, but from your more research-orientated perspective, what's the source of the stigmatization that's still occurring, given, given that large amount of support you're talking about? For sure. Uh, yeah, lots of people ask that question. From my PhD, I've found that abortion stigma is related to less reproductive autonomy. Uh, as well as stronger religiosity and more restrictive abortion attitudes. There's other research in Australia that's found abortion stigma to be linked to sexism as well. Yeah, and so what's the best approach, do you think, at this point? Um, is it through our you know, junior education systems? Is it? Uh, do we need a, a campaign like the, some of the more population health-based campaigns we've seen successful in Australia around you know, cigarettes, HIV, you know, all these things? Like, where, where, where should we be going in your view? 
In Australia, we really need structural change at the moment. Uh, currently, our legislation, healthcare and our understanding all reinforce abortion stigma. And the science and facts are clear and our politicians and decision-making know that abortion is beneficial and a human right, but we need our community to be expressing their support for abortion to propel our MPs and decision-making people to say, hey, we're going to change these structural factors to ensure people have access to quality health care and that it's equitable for everybody and not based on their postcode. Yep. Well, I'm glad you're on it, Sarah, and good to hear you know someone so articulate pushing this message and hopefully the right people, you know, a few people will hear this show, but uh, hopefully you will get to more and more decision makers over the coming years and, and get rid of this stigma completely because it just seems like something for me from the 15th century. But, you know, there it is. Absolutely. It's totally outdated and a message to all the listeners out there, get out there and show your support for abortion because that's how we're going to get our government to make change. Yep. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Sarah. Next up is Muriel Flores-Lima from Deakin University. Muriel, good morning. Welcome to Einstein the Go-Go. Hi, Shane. Glad to be here. It's great to have you, you on the show. Now, you are looking at some of the possible infectious diseases that may come out of a particular uh, that we should expect in Southeast Australia due to climate change. I just get scared even thinking about this. What sort of things are we talking about? Yeah, so we've seen around the world the geographic expansion of different diseases like dengue or Zika, and recently, Japanese encephalitis um, mm. outbreaks in Australia last year. So these expansions can be influenced by different factors, but climate change plays a critical role in it. So my research is about identifying what diseases transmitted by mosquitoes uh, may have a high risk of emergence due to climate change. And I'm focusing on the state of Victoria. Okay? So I'm talking about diseases that haven't been present in the state yet. Right. Are we talking about, are we going so far as things like malaria? Is that where we're heading? Yeah, so the idea is to screen a set of diseases. Um, um, for example, uh, we are focusing at the moment for um, in Zika, uh, West Nile virus, dengue. Malaria is not in the scope at the moment. Mm. But um, yes, to do this, um, we'll develop a model to predict the risk of the disease emergence. And we are looking at, on a micro level. So we want to identify local government areas of risk. Yeah, it sounds like we need to we need to have a fit. We'd have sorry, start again. We would need a fair bit of forewarning here to adapt our health systems to be dealing with some of these diseases that we haven't we haven't had here in forever, right? Exactly. So the idea is to generate uh, risk maps and using climate projections to see uh, when this risk may increase. Uh, for each disease under analysis. And we want to develop a model that is accessible and easy to use for uh, policymakers, land use planners, and public health authorities. Uh, and think about what you just um, said and, you know, how and where to prepare for these diseases. Yeah. Meryl, I, all I can say is good luck with your work. It's obviously very important. And I think it's a matter of when, not if. Would that be your assessment? Exactly. So we use... Um, climate projections in the future and see um, how the climate can change in different locations in, in Victoria and how that may impact on the possible disease emergence. Yep. Thanks so much for chatting to us, Meryl. Great hearing the work. Thank you so much. Next up and second last is Alice Terrell from Monash University. Good morning, Alice. 
Good morning. I'm very excited to be here. It's great to have you on. Um, antibiotics again. We we this is the problem is so huge. I mean, it's it's great that we have a couple of people on talking about it today, but we we have often assumed that this was our go to, and I, spe- I suspect you know when we first discovered antibiotics, everyone got pretty excited because you know everything was suddenly being um, being dealt with. But give us a bit on on what you're looking at in terms of optimizing you know the the combinations and and how how we can in particular go after some of the superbugs, the ones we find in hospitals and so forth. What are you up to? Yeah, absolutely. So like you said, antibiotics were this this golden bullet that we thought had revolutionized and it did revolutionize healthcare. Suddenly, you know, deaths from infections were preventable, which was really, really exciting. And what we're seeing now as antibiotics have been used so extensively is that the bacteria are adapting and we are seeing that emergence of superbugs that simply can't be treated with the antibiotics as we're using them. So what my research does is we're actually looking at how we can use antibiotics in combination and that's showing really promising results with killing bacteria when antibiotics given by themselves don't. And then I'm also looking at... um, specific mutations that are occurring in the bacteria so that when someone has an infection, we're not necessarily just treating based on the type of bacteria, but we can look more specifically at the resistance mechanisms that their infection might have and treat that accordingly. Yeah, it's it's interesting. With the with the combination, is there an ele- a sort of temporal element of I'm going to give you this one for three days and then we pop in the second one? Are you looking at sort of that level of nuance or is it just the we'll give you both at the same time, but the selection of those two is what's most important. Yeah, absolutely. It's giving both at the same time and the selection being really important. So what we see a lot of the time is if you dose one antibiotic, um, the bacteria, it doesn't get killed or it will get killed a little bit and then it will grow back. Um, But when you dose two at the same time, they have a synergistic effect. So they actually can kill the bacteria together more than either of them can alone. Um, And so that's when we see that really uh, significant bacterial killing and we see that there's less resistance coming out from that as well, which is super, super important. Yep. Very cool stuff, Alice. Uh, Hurry up. <laughs> we, uh, yeah, I don't have to say that to all researchers, but in your case, and some of the climate change modeling, and some of that, you know, I say, hurry up. Uh, yeah. But thanks so much. We're doing our best. <laughs> well, you, you know, it's a Sunday. You could be in the lab. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Make, <laughs> make sure you're healthy, well rested, and that will make you the most innovative. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Lucky last is Lena Breck from Monash University. Good morning, Lena. Good morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. Now, you work in an area where I haven't really ha- – I don't think we've had a guest on the show talking about this before, but there are there are many Australians and people around the world who require home feeding tubes due to illness and various other conditions. Tell us a little bit about that and how what, what sort of struggles they encounter as a result of this requirement. Shane, I want you to picture this. Imagine you're a 28-year-old chef. You've just had a car accident. You've come out the other end with a feeding tube. After five months of several face surgeries, you get home, and all you want to do is cook up your favorite meal and put it through your feeding tube. Mm. The problem is if you choose to do that, you'll get limited disability funding supports and limited to no clinical support because you want to 
your homemade blended tube feeding formula in your tube. And and the reason blended tube feeding has such a bad stigma has only happened after the 70s. It's 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 critiqued to be high bacterial contamination, inconsistent nutrition composition and inconsistent viscosity so it can block the tube as they think. So my, now the catch is if you were born before the 70s and this happened, blended tube feeding would have been the norm. Okay. But now the norm is commercial formula. And there's nothing wrong with commercial formula. But as Sarah highlighted, it's about autonomy and a human right to choice. Mm. Presumably <laughs> so, this so, affects uh, mental health of patients quite substantially if they, if they can't do this as well. Absolutely. Well, you're talking about quality of life. Mm. I mean, like if you this is someone living with a feeding tube for the rest of their life. And if they want to put grandma's dinner down the tube, they should have the right to do that. And as clinicians, we need to help them and support them to do what maximizes their mental health. So, so my PhD will be looking at other critiques against blended tube feeding evidence-based. Number two, what are the actual perceptions of health professionals and why are there barriers? And then number three, what are the exact experiences of people with lived experience in Australia? And how can we build a model of care that's inclusive of someone's yeah. choice? Yeah, look, it's a fascinating area. And I suppose I always look at these things more from a physics perspective. It sounds like an element of size and and uh, yeah. processing as opposed to content. <laughs> and that, that really is just the quality of the blending system you're using. Everyone should be yeah. able to – I should be able to eat a steak if I want to if I, if I do it right as opposed yeah. to that choice being removed and then taken away healthcare provisions as a result of that. It's Lena, this is a super interesting area. I hadn't heard about it before. We get, at some stage, we'll probably have to get you back to give us a more detailed run-through of this, but um, <laughs> something, I, I hope your PhD clears that up, that, it, that sometimes in healthcare, we see this, we do see it, where things aren't as evidence-based as they should be, and you, know, you get things propagating, as you say, for decades um, without yeah. proper examination. We, we saw that with the droplet BS stuff with regards to COVID. We've seen it in many areas. Um, this is another one. So good luck with that work, and thanks so much for chatting to us. Thank I'm you so much. All right, folks, uh, that's the end of our PhD group. I'm now stuck here with Chris KP for the next 20 minutes. Are you okay, Chris? I'm fine, I'm fine. No, there are worse things. I can't think of them offhand, but I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are. Folks, uh, I'm going to have to get a sip of water, so we're going to take a break for some, uh, for some, uh, what will we do? I think we'll do some important station announcements. Triple R. Welcome back, people. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. I'm here, Dr. Shane. I'm Dr. Shane. I'm here with Chris KP. G'day. Who's got some news for us? I do, I do. Uh, look, a bit, of, a bit of background context here. The, the Earth spins. That's not the background context. That's assumed knowledge. But yes. uh, what, you, what you may not think of very much, because you're very close to it, you know, the Earth, most of us anyway, the, uh, that spin is not smooth. Oh. It wobbles. So oh. if you picture like a spinning top when it's slowing mm. down a bit, it does that. Yeah, yeah. It's not a big deal, but it does it. It's done it forever. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's normal, but it does it. But things can affect that. Right. Just like if there's a spinning top, if you just touch it with a feather, it wobbles mm. a little differently now. Yeah. And we're so, not talking about precession here. We're talking about... No, that's right. Oh, so precession is where that, that sort of axis wanders. So it's funny you should say that because that... Well, there's two things. One is it wobbles, mm-hmm. but the other is it moves. It, it wanders yeah, yeah. about. Wanders in fact, around. it yep. wanders about at about... 10 metres a year, give or take. Yeah. But that wandering is actually drifting too. It's mm. actually where the poles, where the circle of that, the centre of that circle, the centre of that that, uh, that wandering is mm. moving towards Iceland, someone should warn them. It's actually changing where, the, uh, where the, the, the cycling is, which is interesting. But 
the reason this happens is because there's a whole lot of stuff going on on the surface of the Earth, right. under the surface of the Earth, yep. across the surface of the Earth, um, there are fluids moving. So yep. if you've got, yep. you know, the, the, the molten, uh, you know, iron in the core is sloshing around inside there. You've got ice melting mm. and, and not melting. Mm. You've got ocean currents moving around. Even hurricanes can affect the surface of the Earth and how it moves. So right. you put all this yeah, together, yeah. and we can actually change this stuff. The interesting thing, though, is when I say we can change this stuff, can we change this or does humans. it just change? Yeah. 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 Can humans do this? And it turns out that... Uh, Kind of, yeah. So, oh. uh, a bunch of researchers from Korea, China, the US, and I've recently found out Melbourne Uni uh, in, in, the, in the list of authors. Interesting. Yes, I thought so. Yeah. Um, they had a model. They wanted to see, you know, well, does this, you know, does, does human activity do anything to this? And what they found, uh, and they picked the period of time between 1993 and 2010 because they have really good satellite data. Okay. They can get really down to within a few millimetres of movement. Interestingly, um, initially, the changes in ice and movement around dams and stuff was not enough to change any sort of polar motion. That right. just wasn't a thing. Okay. However, when they added in the amount of water that is moved um, by groundwater being pumped out from under the surface of the earth, oh, yeah. it did. Oh. So, yeah, the model for a start, there's, there's something in the reason of about, let me get this right, 2,150 gigatons of groundwater are pumped out, which means you're moving it from one part of the Earth to another part. Well, And that does, according to their model, um, suggest that the pole shifts by about 80 centimetres during that period of time. So in that, what is that? Uh, what did I say? 93 to 2010? Almost two decades. Uh, yeah. Is that right? Mm. Yeah, that's right. Yes. So in nearly 20... <laughs> just in the math, I was going to say 30, I'm going to get something right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Something in me calculator, yes. Um, but yes, yeah, about about. So that's the better part of a meter because of what yeah. we're doing because yeah. of us moving water around. We're not adding any more. We're not taking it away. We're just moving it from one place to another. There you go. It's so a, it's a, it's a little disturbing. It is a little. I disturbing. mean, we miss. Well, that may not be a significant amount in terms of the overall motion of the Earth and so forth. But um, but the fact that we we can measure it, we can, we're doing we, it. Yeah, it's enough to be measured. You think, geez, yeah. um, can we put it back? <laughs> I guess. Yeah. yeah but that'd be, that'd be a question for the model. How do we reverse this? Yeah, yeah. If we just pump it back where it belongs, feel, nice feel, groundwater. I feel like that may not be that simple. Yeah, yeah. Something tells me this is another one of those, you know, cooked egg problems. Yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah. yeah. Where you can't, um, you can't go back. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. Apparently you can. you can these days. There's some models that say you can, but too complicated. egg. Much, much hard work. Too complicated. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, what else is going on? Uh, look, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you, um, okay. And this is this is testing your earlier assertion that you you know didn't do a lot of biology. Uh, <laughs> that's not an assertion, pal. That's a fact. But, but, but maybe but maybe it's maybe it's got nothing to do with school biology. This is just life. Okay. Have you ever heard of a chisel pig? No. Okay. I've heard of the two things independently. Ah, uh, fair enough. Yes. Yeah. What about a cheese log? <laughs> this is sounding worse. Uh, again, independently. Okay. Uh, sour bug. Uh, <laughs> is this going to end soon? <laughs> well, it depends how soon you want it to end. So these are... Oh, what about Slater? Slater? Oh, yeah. yeah of course. Ah, yes. Yes, I know Slater. So one of the cool things about Slaters is that there are so many names for them around the world. Ah, right. They're all names for Slater. Slater, uh, Woodlouse, Butchie Boy, uh, Rolly Poly, Wood Pig, Doodle Bug, Chucky Pig, Armadillo Bug, which seems actually kind of appropriate. Yeah. Anyway, I would have got the majority of those wrong just saying. Oh, wait, because it's funny because I actually picked those first three because they seemed the most obscure. Oh. <laughs> so you did well not oh, to get well, any yeah. of them. There we go. Anyway, they are a little bit awesome, partly yeah. because they're pretty much ubiquitous. I mean, yeah, most people yeah. have seen them they're or everywhere. see them daily. Yeah, they're all yeah. over the joint. There are about three and a half thousand species of them. Oh. Yeah. Um, and they all and, look the same. Well, this is the thing. Sort of. when, when someone says, 
there's, you know, thousands of species of anything, the first thing I think is, uh-huh, they presumably don't all hang out in my garden. Yeah, because the ones there all look the same. Exactly. Yeah. And they don't. Here's the interesting thing. Yeah. So these are isopods, which are crustaceans. If mm-hmm. you think about crustaceans, crustaceans uh, are... I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is like shrimp. Yeah, crayfish. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Depends, depends what you prefer to eat. Crabs. Well, well, I'll get to that in a minute, yeah. maybe. We'll see how we go. But they are actually related. And, of course, the thing about all, you know, shrimps, crabs, lobsters, etc., is that they're marine animals. Right. And yet the slaters, the slaters are not. Mm. Except the ones that are. So here's the interesting thing. They were originally marine creatures. And at some point a very long time ago, and we're talking carboniferous here, we're talking, you know, 350 to 300-ish million years ago, okay. they got out of the water. They went, yeah, no, we're not there was doing some big anymore. stuff in the water back then. Yeah. I might have gotten out too. <laughs> it's, it's a good point, you know. Yeah. I, I've been avoiding this for a long time, but now that that's there, yeah. I might get up onto the dry bit. Yeah. yeah. So they got out of the water uh, and, and they've spread out from there and they inhabit the most extraordinarily broad range. So there are still some that hang around in sort of the, the littoral zone, which is sort of the intertidal and down to the continental shelf zone. There are some in mm. that area. Um, they're all through our gardens, of course, usually yep. under bits of rotting wood and nicely con- sort of damp, cosy, wet places. Um, but they also live in arid deserts. Right. How insane is that? And it'll, it, it's even more insane when you think about where they've come from. Um, even on the sides of mountains. They can, you can find them in sort of, you know, uh, sort of... Um, uh, the, the really cold deserts, you know, 4,000 metres right, above right. sea level, you can, find, yeah, yeah. you can find the isopods there too. So they're all over the joint, which, is, which makes sense when you think 3,500, they're spreading out to wherever they can, you know, make it work, I guess. So they're all, but they all have that same sort of flattish, mm. um, you know, paired legsy thing. Yep. Some can curl up in balls, some cannot. Uh, oh. that's, not, that's not universal. I love the ball curl up. I think that's one of the most amazing features of them. And it's so, I mean, okay, this is going to sound patronising. It's so simple. Yeah. You want to protect your innards? Just tuck up. But they're really good at it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what is cool is that they have seven pairs of legs. Seven? Seven pairs of An legs. An odd number. Yeah. I kind of like that too. I, yeah. don't, I don't know what it is about that. I think we're so used to things being evened yeah. um, if they've got more than one thing. Well, whenever someone says eight, I get yes. a little tingle in my spine because I'm arachnophobic. Ah, so seven to me sounds great. <laughs> it's, it's just not going to... It's not going to... It shouldn't creep you out as badly. Yeah, Fair I enough, mean, yeah. one more leg and I'm in well, trouble. Well, the interesting thing is they've only got six pairs when they're born. When they oh. hatch, they've only got six. And so, I've, so like, like all of the arthropods, they have to sort of molt. They, they right. shed their exoskeleton in two parts, by the way. They shed the front part first. They hang for a bit, and they shit the back part. Oh. Not, isn't that cool? I think it's great. Well, you know, you want to scuff up the, the front with the back and, I'm you also know, wondering, just I'm wondering, be sure. I don't know this. I'm wondering if it's partly a protection thing. Yeah. But I can sort of curl up. Although tougher. And, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, maybe. Anyway, hmm. um, but it, they've got to do that uh, once or twice before they get their seventh pair. Oh. So you've got to qualify, if you like. It's <laughs> <laughs> like puberty for arthropods. Yeah. For right. arthropods, yeah, yeah, rather, yeah. I think. Yeah. Anyway, so they, yes, um, they get their seventh pair at that point. Um, but the cool thing about them as babies is that it, they are actually, the, the mother actually carries them around in essentially a pouch. She oh. has a sort of damp, wet area where they can hang out and, be, and remain wet, which is important to them, before they're born. And then they hatch out and then they have their, right. eventually they molt and grow out. The reason... Being moist is important is because they've hung on to this thing since when they were marine animals. Right. The slaters that we're so used to actually have gills. Oh. On their, they have a, they have a pair of specialised legs, you know, specialised uh, organs on their legs, which are essentially gills. So they need to stay moist in order to to breathe. Right. How insane is that? That is wild stuff. As soon as I heard that, I'm like, I have. So- okay, this is going to sound awful too, but I have so much respect for them. Yeah. 
And, and, you know, there, there was such a ingrained part of our childhood. I mean, if you picked up – I remember this, you know, growing up west of Melbourne. If you picked up a rock and there were not slathers under it, <laughs> something was amiss. Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's true, actually. Yeah. But they were true. always there. I just yeah, remember yeah. them always being there. No matter what you picked up, there might be some other critters as well, but there's always a couple of slaves. They are amazingly, yeah. Which, of course, you know, and that that made me. I thought the same thing. I thought they're everywhere, and when you when they're really doing well, there's lots of them mm. too. There's many of them, which made me wonder: can you eat them? And no, I never had. <laughs> yeah, can we grow them up as a protein yeah, source? Because of, yeah. of all the weird things that you know, you sort of try to put in your mouth as a kid. I never tried to eat a slater. <laughs> But no, I mean everything else. But <laughs> most things, yeah. Most things. The thing is, you probably could. Yeah. But Crunchy. maybe, maybe, maybe the little tiny ones aren't the go. Mm. Interestingly, one of the inordinately diverse places where they live is deep in the ocean. Right. What do you know about deep things in the ocean? Oh, they're they're uh, well. The colour doesn't matter. They're softer. Correct. Yes. Yeah. They have to be softer. They can yeah. be softer, and they, you're right about the colour. They can be often quite quite bland colour. They can't see you coming. Yeah, <laughs> not, their eyes are a little different. That's true, yeah. but they're also often large. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. So there are, in fact, giant and and there's even super giant isopods that live in the ocean, and we're talking up to fifty centimeters. Oh, now that's something you can hold in your hands. Like, yeah. Hands, plural. Butt. It needs two hands. Yes, and potentially <laughs> you could eat it. People have tried to eat oh. them. I don't know whether it's worth going down that far yeah, to get yeah. them. But, that, that, again, that just adds to the extraordinary diversity of them. You get the tiny little roly-poly thing, and you have the great big fat thing that sits in your arms like a weird seven-legged paired baby. <laughs> it, it is cool stuff. What I want to know is how is it that the cockroaches have got the better, better PR team? They don't know. Because don't know. clearly the, these little guys are um, everywhere. They need Pretty an agent. Resilient. They need an agent. And I don't know, but they haven't seen a lot of cockroaches in the desert. Good point. You know, good so point. yes, they're good at surviving <laughs> nuclear explosions and stuff. But to be frank, Harrison Ford did in the fridge. So, you know, it can happen. <laughs> and very good call. it looks like the Slaters might be back at the top of the food chain up there with the little bears. Re- oh, so good. You know, so good. Little tardigrades. Right? Yeah, so tardigrades. Good. You know, yeah. tardigrades. And that could be the new, the new range for me is uh, tardigrades at the I top. Like it. Uh, Slater Slater's second and cockroaches. I'm sorry, but you're down in third place. Your PR team has failed because <laughs> it was going pretty well for a while. You know, people yeah, strapping little cameras in. on them, we sending them into mines. Yeah, you know, yeah. they're all great. They're, they're going to survive <laughs> long after us. But my money might go back onto Slater. I think Slater's in the money. Yeah, that's the place to be. <laughs> Take care of your Slater's. Chris KP, uh, it is always a good having you on the show because we manage to bring in these very important <clears throat> factoids. <laughs> Sorry, just had a frog in my throat. Uh, now, folks, the Community Cup is about to start. Where Triple R is going to do some uh, nasty work down there. Uh, if you want to go down and, and hang out with football players, check out all the details. that are on the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. It's not raining, which oh, is great. It's, it's, it's a little bit less it's fun. Good football but, weather. Yeah, it's Being good wet, fo- but not perfect, raining. Perfect football weather. In a moment, I am very pleased to be able to say I'm going to hand over to the team from Eat It. The Cam, whole team. The whole it. team. Cam has been away for a little while. He's been working on himself, as he does. Um, but he is back, I believe, and uh, very happily in Studio One, where there's a lot of natural light. With a big thank you to all the PhD um, PhD students who came in uh, to the show today, uh, part of the 20 PhDs in 20 Minutes program, and part of Triple R's support for uh, young researchers yeah. across Australia and the world. 
We love having uh, young researchers in the studio and online uh, to tell you all about their work. So a big thank you to them. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a fantastic Sunday, and we will chat to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. And feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.